Hello and welcome to Devil's Chess Club. I'm Aaron Good, author of American Exception, Empire in the Deep State, and the host of the American Exception podcast on Patreon. Today, co-host Bryce Green and I are going to be talking with independent journalist Sam Husseini. He has some concerns about RFK Jr.'s positions on Palestine and on COVID that we're going to be discussing. As it happens, after we recorded this, Gaza launched its own Tet Offensive against Israel. I will say more about this at the end of the broadcast. After we talk with Sam, Bryce and I talk about his union drive in Bloomington, as well as a number of other political developments, including Bernie Sanders calling the cops on Code Pink. Sam Husseini, thank you for joining us. Great to be with you, Aaron. And you too, Bryce. And Bryce Absolutely. Green, always great to have you back. Absolutely, Aaron and Sam. It's good to be uh, talking to you both. So we're going to be talking about uh, some critiques of RFK Jr.'s 2024 campaign uh, with Sam. And uh, Sam, in, in general, what, um, what, what have been your thoughts as Kennedy has entered this race and now that he's been on the verge of announcing that he's going to run as an independent, uh, what do you think this all means for us? Well, I mean, my concerns, I mean, obviously there's, you know, good stuff in the campaign. Um, uh, um, but, you know, I won't dwell too much on that. Um, I think it was clear from the beginning that running as a Democrat was a dead end, you know, right? I mean, I had a piece months and months ago, um, you know, as to the, the by law, the DNC can go into a smoke-filled room and pick their nominee. Um, that, that's, <laughs> that is set law. Um, so for him to go in and sort of expect that he could criticize the party in the way that he did and get the nomination, you know. Um, um, so there's that question. My, you know, my questions about him are sort of twofold. One is, you know, from the day that he announced, he gave this very eloquent announcement speech, which I covered at the time. But I noted how odd it was that he went off on this, you know, very, you know, interesting critique of nature, of, of how we treat nature. And then he made no mention of gain of function lab work, which could have caused the pandemic, which is a major human event that dominated life for the last three years. And he wrote a book on Fauci, which I read, which had a lot of interesting info on it, in it. And he's talked a lot about that. And then it went downhill from there. I found that repeatedly he wouldn't talk about major pandemic COVID related issues, especially when he had big microphone, when he was on Rogan, or CNN or whatever. And I find this highly problematic. Um, he, um, you know, what Bernie Sanders, you know, was has been called a sheepdog, and I think with justification by people um, that he sort of takes dissent and funnels it back into the Democratic Party. I, I think that what RFK, but 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 Sanders at least gave voice to his central issue, right? Uh, income inequality, you know, you, you, he can't go, you know, he, you know, a, a, almost any question, you know, you ask him, he'll funnel it back into that. By contrast, RFK seems to be avoiding it. 
uh, talking about COVID. Um, and, you know, people can justify it like it's a strategic thing. But I think that it is a major failure that will that further memory holds all of the scandalous behavior of the government during the pandemic um, and is a tremendously missed opportunity at mass public education. Sam, you're, uh, you seem pretty quiet all of a sudden. I don't know if you're a little further away from your microphone or. I didn't move. Um, did I don't you, think did, I was that your experience, Bryce? Oh, well, now you sound better now. Um, you did okay, get quiet for to, a bit, but I'll try to stay yeah, closer. I don't, I hope I don't need to repeat. Okay. No, the end of what I said. So Sam, I, do you think that his avoiding, do you think he's making a mistake by not focusing on his central issue? Or, I mean, my take on it is that he doesn't want COVID or other vaccines, you know, things related to big pharma and vaccinations, um, to be, his campaign, he wants it to be centered basically on peace and taking on corporate corruption. So in that light, yeah, I, I is, would... he, is he maybe trying to de-emphasize some of these things that they have already used to pillory him with so so often in the in the past? Or except look, except for example, he has gotten into very high-profile discussions in the last few months about vaccines and autism, which has nothing to do with COVID, this cataclysmic human event that dominated life for the last three years. Um, so he is, he has picked up the baggage, if you want to call it that, of his quote unquote anti-vaccine stance, or at least that's how the major media, you know, caricature him without alerting the public that can now try to have a reckoning around COVID. So. And also it fits into the whole peace thing. You know, peace activists are not realizing that biowarfare exists and creation of potentially pandemic pathogens euphemistically called um, gain of function, which can be regarded as biowarfare is a major existential threat to humanity, um, at least on par with global warming or nuclear war and so on. Um, seems to have actually caused this pandemic and somehow it's not regarded as a peace issue i don't understand why that's not a main way that he can use his campaign to make those linkages uh that are evident to me you also have the who trying to impose a treaty which can shred sovereignty and um uh, democratic processes of countries around the world the united states as well as developing countries yeah, could you, uh, are you, you're probably more aware yeah. of this than me. Could you give us a summary of what is, what that treaty is seeking to accomplish and where it is in the, in terms of like where it stands in the, uh, as a treaty that's on its way to becoming possibly ratified or adopted? I mean, because I, 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 I'm, a, I'm with curious to know more about that. And I, it does seem that that could become a campaign issue that maybe, maybe, that could be could and should be something he would run against just to point out because i don't think anybody only a tiny bit of people are even aware that this is going on yeah i haven't followed the blow by blow to be honest i've cited other people who are regularly cranking out substacks about it in in my own writing i do know that congress latest move thanks to the republicans moved to defund who and people following this are happy about it i'm not sure about that 
I do know that Jeffrey Sachs, who I think is linked to RFK in certain ways, and I hope to be writing about this, has been very pro WHO. And I suspect that his stance regarding Ukraine is sort of a um, way of flying under the radar and being accepted by progressives so that he can end up being a salesperson for the WHO uh, if and when the time comes. But I, I hope to be writing about that. Um, one thing that I will say that I have followed in relation to this is Jeremy Farrar, who's now chief scientist of the WHO and was a major, major propagandist to pretending that COVID couldn't have come out of a lab. He was involved in both pillars of propaganda, the Lancet letter and the Nature Medicine article, Proximal Origins. And now he is the chief scientist of the WHO. This should be a major scandal. It is appalling in my view that RFK is not railing against this. Well, I went and looked at, I haven't read his book on, uh, his Wuhan book, but I was looking at the table of contents. It's not out yet, is it? Oh, I thought it was. Uh, maybe I'm thinking of uh, another book, but I was looking at the table of contents of it because uh, that's at least available on Amazon. Uh, and, and he does have a chapter about uh, Farrar and the WHO. Which... Great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He needs to and, and, talk about it when he gets on CNN. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, because it seems like COVID and COVID issues relating relating uh, issues relating to COVID, including uh, you know, the the mRNA vaccine. Uh, RFK Jr. has been talking a lot about that. In fact, I mean, he seems to be on the. Uh, uh, he talks a lot about the you know the increased uh, like death rate, and I, I think he's endorsed like the the died suddenly thesis. Uh, about that. And I think, I don't know to what extent he's been, you know, extremely vocal about it. Uh, but it does seem like that those issues are part of uh, at least his set of issues that he talks about on his stump speech or when he's talking about anti-establishment and when he's critical of, uh, you know, the COVID story. And keep in mind, these are issues that I haven't studied myself, so I don't have an opinion on them. Uh, but it does seem like he is making them uh, known, at least. Do you feel the same way? I, I, again, I don't follow every speech that he makes and every um, you know interview, but I've tracked his major interviews, his announcement speech. We'll see what he does with his independence speech in Philadelphia. Um, he, it seems to me, has avoided the, what I perceive as the central issues of COVID origins and gain-of-function lab work when he deals with that. And he gets sidetracked on... I mean, he, I mean, a total cluster, excuse my language, clusterfuck was he talked about the um, COVID vaccines um, or, or, or COVID uh, having less of an effect uh, on Eskenazi Jews um, at a function where a New York Post reporter. Yeah, um, you know, apparently, you know, uh, I don't know, allegedly it was off the record, but it's a New York Post reporter. I mean, <laughs> you're not going to trust them. To, um, and then that becomes a major thing. Um, he's painted as an anti-Semite for saying this. And then he ends up going on the escalating his pro-Israel diatribe. And it, this happened just before he was supposed to testify on the Hill. Um, about uh, how uh, internet censorship stifled free speech. 
So he puts aside his prepared remarks, which were actually quite good. I read them um, and ends up, you know, telling these Congress people at length about how pro-Israeli he is. Um, and, and this is a general motif. Somebody seems to say something that people perceive as anti-Jewish and that becomes a pretext uh, or I'm so pro-Israel, I'm so pro-Israel, I'm so pro-Israel. Um, and, you know, I think that this is highly problematic in a number of ways. For one, internet censorship. I mean, there was massive internet censorship. The primary example of internet censorship prior to COVID was probably Palestinian stuff. Uh, they were getting shafted left and right. And then with COVID, of course, then that took precedence of like doing speech around COVID and COVID origins and vaccines and so on. So there were so many connections to be made. We're so far from making those. Um, and he's not doing it. And, you know, I mean, and, and his stance on Israel isn't, uh, I mean, of course, you know, Co uh, Corbyn, you know, got totally, you know, you know, gone after. But the obvious thing for him to have done would have been to just copy Bernie Sanders' stance on Israel, which I think is, you know, milk toast. but it's a hell of a lot better than the pro, you know, I, I mean, you know, when he talks about Israel, Kennedy sounds like he's, you know, Netanyahu drunk. You know, it's so incredibly over the top. You know, you're right, maybe he doesn't mean it, and this is all a con, but you know that's what that's what everybody said during Obama. It's like, oh, Obama's got to say that to get in. <laughs> and then he got in, and it's you know. To be fair, the things that RFK is saying are much more on point than those promises that Obama made and did not keep. I mean, on other issues, yes, on, and on the big, you know, billion-dollar issue of all issues, which is should the U.S be the global hegemon of the world and he's saying explicitly no we we should not we have to fundamentally you know my uncle realized that we'd made a mistake and that he wanted to revive fdr's tendency to or, or his his he wanted to revive it uh, he wanted to pursue what, what fdr sort of thought we should have done which is not pick up the british empire i mean these are deep critiques that I do think he's actually sincere about. The Israel business, I admit, is uh, you, you sort of think, yeah, he uh, my general sense is that why doesn't he just take the Bernie Sanders generic, you know, stance, which is to be Zionist, but not, you know, hardcore. Shoving it in your face. But like, I, you know, I and I don't really have a perfect answer for it as to I think uh, it could well be that he wants to avoid to insulate himself. I mean, he already does get tarred as an anti-Semite like and he he said that about the study that showed that like Ashkenazi Jews and other people in Southeast Asia were like less affected by some uh, particular ethnic trait that's more common found commonly found in, among their genetics or whatever. And then he explains what he means. You're like, oh, okay, well, that's... But, you know, he, he was still not very clear with what he was saying. I mean, he, he ba badly bungled what he was trying to say. But what I think is key here, which you, you do need to say, Sam, because you haven't really mentioned this, he's the only... You're, you're talking about how nobody recognizes what a threat Biowar is, but he's the only candidate with... Or the only, not even anyone in Congress, really, has a, a position as good as his on this issue. He's the only person that I know of saying... We need a treaty that will 
uh, regular, you know, that that has teeth that will not that will stop this kind of, uh, you know, disaster from happening. And we we need to really get on top of this. He's the, he's the only person who's even speaking about these issues. Um, so, you I mean, know, that, there's that there's that issue. All the other people are are far far worse than him on this on this issue of of bio warfare. Yeah, I mean, there there is a treaty, but it doesn't have a you know, execution Jeez. mechanism. Yeah. And I, I asked about it at the State Department just this week. Um, but the, the I mean, my problem is that to my ear, he has been silent on these issues when he can reach the public. I'm sure that there's some podcast with 5000 listeners where he's said stuff. I'm sure, you know, I, I know that that those, those are the positions, certainly the many of the people around him although I have concerns about some of the people around him. Um, um, but the fact that he's not using a campaign to do public education, he has an opportunity to, when he gets the mic to reach the, the public, the US public and the global public. You don't have that power. I don't have that power. He didn't have that power before he ran for president. Now he's got that power and he's not using it. And this is a historic at minimum, massive failure in my view. What would you recommend he focus on explicitly about these, he's, he's, these he's areas running, that would resonate with people? He's running to the U.S. border. Why doesn't he run to some of the labs that are doing this work? There's, there's legislation right now in Wisconsin to stop the lab there, one of the most notorious labs. These guys. Uh, resurrected the Spanish flu. They weaponized the avian flu. The New York Times, when they did this in 2011, actually ran an editorial saying a, an engineered doomsday warning about what these guys were doing. There's now legislation in Wisconsin to try to stop it. And it's getting ignored. A functional Kennedy campaign that meant what it said would be there and would would try to you know, would, would would go to where these labs are in North Carolina, in Galveston, Texas, and galvanize the U.S. public to ensure that this kind of scourge does not continue to hang like a sort of Damocles over humanity. Why is he running to the board? Yeah, I, I think I do see uh, w what you mean by that, by, uh, you know, using a political campaign, especially one as high profile as like a presidential run. Uh, you know, there is a chance, you know, however remote that he could win and that there uh, that the circumstances could lead to victory. Uh, but if that doesn't happen, uh, the goal is always, you know, education. I keep saying that the 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 role of, you know, independent media, especially surrounding these uh, presidential campaigns, is to use, you know, the, what their issues are, what they're talking about to you know, better educate the public. And, uh, you know, there are some issues in which RFK Jr. is certainly doing this, but uh uh, like you said, if he's there not are. going to, there are. I, I should emphasize that you know a lot of the times when he says, I, "I don't mean to interrupt you, Bryce," but I just want to emphasize that I do appreciate oh, no. some of the things that he said. Yeah, especially like the the assassinations. I mean, like now is a, an important time in American history and American imperial history, and uh, you know he's made uh, allusions to the sort of disclosures that might you know open up some of these uh, cases, or at least uh, creating the public space where he can talk about these things. Uh, but like you said, if he's not going to, uh, you know, use his platform for 
these real legislative fights that are happening in the state house, these real fights on the ground, uh, I mean, that, that, that does seem like a valid point of criticism at the very least. Well, I wrote in my, <clears throat> my dissertation and then, you know, the book later that there are these many, several um, existential crises that we're facing. I mentioned the nuclear issue and ecological problems and uh, massive levels of in inequality. Uh, I think you could add the issue of bio war to that as well. And in, on these issues, on all of them, really, our Kennedy is taking positions that are far better than the al than the alternatives. And I sympathize with uh, anyone who has an issue that they're very concerned with, as you are, Sam, with this issue of biowarfare, and which I also do agree with you is a major issue and that really should be discussed a lot. But that the for Kennedy, part of I, I, I believe that he is very much unlike unlike other candidates that we've talked about in recent decades who were really far outside of the mainstream. He's actually trying to win with a, a, a set of positions that, by and large, the establishment hates and is guaranteed to want to destroy him for holding. And so, but in, in his mind, he don't, I don't think he's necessarily trying to movement build or anything like that. I think he's actually trying to win, thinking that another four years of playing nuclear Russian roulette or playing bio-warfare Russian roulette is is a, is not something that we want to do, and there isn't some there isn't a movement waiting in the wings. I mean, I think the idea of a coherent ideological movement is more like what Cornell West is trying, but how what kind of chance does that have of succeeding in the in the U.S. Whereas RFK is running a, an unusual campaign that it kind it really does transcend left and right to to an extent, and I don't mean that in a in a corny way or in a disingenuous way, it, he's really, he says that he wants to run against the corrupt merger of state and corporate power. And he wants to end the U.S. empire and that he wants to protect civil liberties. So I think in a sense he's running, even though he doesn't say it, he's basically running an anti-fascist campaign to restore democracy. I mean, he's running, which I know it sounds over like kind of corny almost, but like, this is an, like most of the people, whether they're more conservative or more to the left, no, they don't openly advocate that the state should be a secretly fascist entity that like assassinates elected officials if, if it decides that that's what should be done. But that's the kind of system that we have. So it's a it's a very strange campaign and a, a strange moment brought on by decades of, of, of lying and a kind of criminal enterprise running a global empire that we've been saddled with for so long. And I mean, to me that I kind of will give him the benefit of the doubt in terms of tactical questions, I guess, because of this, but what, what's your response to that? Sure. I mean, I view Cornell West as sort of the other side of the equation of Kennedy. He's, you know, saying the usual anti-imperialist pro-Palestinian stuff that you would expect of a green party candidate. Um, and uh, but he's completely clueless or worse when it comes to COVID uh, related stuff, at least as far as what I've seen so far. Um, so from my point of view, I, I mean, I've been a longtime advocate of anti-establishment forces coming together. I developed a voting strategy for it, Vote Pact, where you have for you know a 
disenchanted Democrat, disenchanted Republican pairing up and both voting for an anti-establishment candidate. I tremendously attempted to have Nader adopt this as his strategy in 2000. I've been at this for a very long time, and I feel like every Green Party or every third party candidate, you know, just comes in from the margins and they're lucky if they get 2%, and it's completely pathetic. Um, you end up, people you agree with, allegedly, you know, liberal left-wing Democrats end up attacking you because you're a spoiler. So Vote Pact solves that problem. It requires a lot of work, but it solves that problem. And I urged Kucinich, who's now, you know, um, uh, Kennedy's campaign manager, to adopt that when he got voted out, when he got redistributed out of Congress. I was like, join with Ron Paul and, you know, start a movement and run for president and vice president and have an anti-empire ticket. Um, he didn't do that. Kennedy, you're right, has an opportunity to do this left-right thing and to find that radical center that I've talked about for a very long time existing. I feel like he's not doing that in part because of his Israel stance. Um, and, um, and so you have this thing where he and West are both... I mean, if I had my druthers, they would both drop out now and make way for a candidate who got both sides of the equation. And there are people like that with big name, with respectable names, you know, Colleen Rowley, for example, 9-11 whistleblower. She gets every side of this equation. You know, there is an opening to literal electoral victory, in my view, for a candidate who takes an articulate and principled stance against different sides of the establishment. Kennedy gets a good deal of it. He doesn't get all of it. And I feel like that can be a fatal flaw strategically as well as morally. But do you really, I mean, I like Colleen. She's great, but she doesn't, would not bring the heat and light to that um, Cornell and RFK Jr. do. I mean, there's a. I mean, it's, it's, there's the, is she pol the, is she politically person. active? Like, like yeah, she well, she she speaks about different she, things, and she's an activist. She so. speaks about things. She ran she ran for Congress about you know 10, oh, okay. 10 15 years ago, yeah. and you know yeah. she's got this whole shtick about how you know most people in political life are psychopaths because they keep you know <laughs> going doing the same hideous thing over and over again. How power. Uh, you know, uh, corrupts the best and attracts the worst. Um, so she's not a power seeker. Um, but, you know, I mean, what I'm talking about is kind of a going back to the, you know, what, what at least is depicted as the early days of the, uh, of the U.S. Republic, that, that, you know, people didn't run for president 150 years ago. They were called upon by people who supported them to accept the nomination. Um, so, I mean, I, I feel like that's maybe part of the twisted dynamic that we have now. I, I'm just saying that I believe there is an opening for literal electoral victory if somebody takes a principled, reasonable anti-establishment stance and neither Cornel West nor Robert Kennedy are doing that right now. And I think that in all likelihood that spells doom and if it doesn't spell doom, if Kennedy pulls it off, 
and he actually becomes president, which I think is actually plausible. I don't think it's likely, but I think it's plausible. Um, I worry about the next stage of U.S. empire. You know, I mean, my writings on U.S. presidents has been that they get instrumentalized by the establishment for their most nefarious purposes. Human Jimmy Carter talked about human rights, and it got deformed into all kinds of crazy things that ended up setting the stage for disaster after disaster. Trump talked about America first, and it got deformed into the worst possible form of America first. I'm concerned, you know, particularly you have former CIA people being, you know, around his camp, former CIA people around his campaign. Um, I'm concerned that Kennedy, should he win, could tragically be the next state. U.S. empire is not a stagnant thing. It's like stages of a rocket. Um, we have to guard against the possibility, even people who support Kennedy, as I know you do, Aaron, I think need to be mindful and guarding against the possibility that he could be twisted into the next form of U.S. empire. Yeah, I'm trying to figure out what the U.S. has, what the U.S. could potentially look like if we do end up with uh, an RFK presidency who, you know, who, and he takes active steps to move the U.S. off of a, a footing for global dominance. Would what would that mean? Would he be the person sort of standing there, holding the bag when there was an economic collapse that? is that would partly result from this That's part or of it. would or would he be able to to manage things it's difficult to say i mean you have like the, the capital strike in france you know uh decades ago when they, they went too far to the left and so all the sort of oligarchs just decided they would pull their money out and tell tell so that they could tell the leadership what to do i don't know that the u.s has in its bag of tricks something to deal with this particular set of circumstances that's facing it. That's where I think the Kennedy campaign goes beyond questions of like regular political campaigns and beyond issues of the duopoly, as you know, we talk about all the time, because I see the duopoly as a, as a function of this particular corporate uh, global empire, that it's a, it's a function of this enormous power that we have. And that as this power dissipates either because of outside forces or because of something unusual like a, a different administration i don't know that the u.s can get it can get back what it's what it's losing now which is which is i think and i don't know what that's going to look like but i think it's a it's a real thing that some people in the establishment have to have started to understand i mean larry fink himself when the ukraine war began said globalization is over like i think that there's something significant in what he is alluding to there and we're not really talking i mean we as a public are, are not we because we don't talk about the empire rationally and so we can't even process we can't process the normal the normal situation as it's existed for decades rationally and openly and much less be able to figure out what the hell is happening now that 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 normal situation which existed but which we never acknowledged is evaporating if you follow so i mean this is yeah, I, I don't mean, know where I don't know where he goes from here, or where the U.S. goes, and even if they even if he's overcome and they put in another, you know, he's defeated, if, let's say, and they put in another sort of establishment person one way or the other, or even Trump with his ideas of 
of stopping the American Empire but still keeping it going. The, it seems that the forces that are bringing the American Empire ever downward are are going to continue regardless. And so I don't know how that factors into it, but it's something to, to think about. Yeah, I mean, I don't view it. I view empire as a force and certainly the American Empire is a central, but I don't think it's the only thing. Uh, I mean, you know, you, you have world economic forum functioning strong and liberals are different you know liberals who were at the world social forums that were supposed to be a counter to the world economic forum you know 15 years ago are now citing the world economic forum again because of the pandemic stuff i mean i could envision a scenario where kennedy becomes president and anything good that he tries to do is hunker you know is prevented effectively uh, by the agencies and by Congress and so on. Um, and that other global forces uh, attempt to restrict him. You, you could have Israel going bonkers, right? Um, what's going to stop that with a Kennedy president? Which I mean, seems that, increasingly likely. Right. Yeah, I mean, Israel yeah, is incredibly well positioned. I mean, Trump and Biden working effectively together uh, have normally have had Israel normalized relations with all of the countries of the region and Saudi Arabia is getting there. Um, Netanyahu just met with Ergoland of Turkey. Um, so that leaves the Palestinians completely isolated. Israel's gotten a green light to wreck whatever havoc they want. That could happen under a Kennedy administration. Kennedy would do nothing, and that could be the main accomplishment of empire during a Kennedy administration, while every good thing that he wants to have happen is bogged down in some way. And and maybe there's you know economic problems, whatever, and they bounce him out, and that's that. Um, Right. This is sort of, um, you know, what I talk about when I talk about the need for uh, like a sustained movement as to to be a part of a presidential campaign. I mean, you know, it's difficult to accomplish anything in the United States, even if you're the president and you have all this, you know, nominal power on paper. Uh, but if there's no counterbalancing power center that is actually, uh, you know, pushing these institutions to function differently, well, then there's no reason to expect that even if you have a, you know, a top-down directive, the institutional inertia won't completely stifle these sorts of things. I mean, like, even when Trump was trying to, uh, uh, you know, pull out of Syria, you know, he had his some generals saying that they're playing shell games with the number of troops there to try and, like, you know, lie to Trump. Uh, to to And they ended up keeping the troops there. And then they eventually got Trump on board saying he's going to stay there for the oil. Uh, but, you know, in, in terms of like making real change on the legislative front, I mean, you're going to have to have some people like a large base of individuals like grassroots people on the ground pushing elected representatives to support your program if you do have a program. And, you know, one of my critiques of the RK Jr. campaign is that he doesn't seem to be even trying to build that sort of movement that could support him if he does end up trying to do good things in his presidency. And that's in contrast to Cornell West, who does seem to be doing that. Uh, but like you said, he has his own he has his own issues. Uh, but uh, I mean, I'm curious of what you think that 
how do you compare the two campaigns in terms of uh, in terms of on on that front? I mean, like you you've mentioned that uh, you know you had concerns about the people around West and the people around uh, RFK, uh, but uh, you know how how do the these grassroots movements support these sort of these campaign brain trusts and uh, like how will that dynamic play out or how should that dynamic play out in your view? Well, I mean, the West campaign, I don't know how it's significantly different from every other green campaign that I've seen over the last 25 years. I mean, he's, you know, articulate and, you know, you can critique, you know, uh, you know, his rhetorical style or whatever. But I mean, Nader had a lot of support, including by Cornell West uh, and other people and got 2.6 percent. Um, the only candidate who has uh, gotten better than that uh, in, uh, since then uh, was Gary Johnson of the Libertarian Party. Um, and he got, um, and he, he, in part because he adopted my vote pack strategy. There, there was a, a pack called Balanced Rebellion, which took my idea, rebranded it as the Balanced Rebellion, uh, and actually helped pair up. Democrats and Republicans. was it with your permission that they took no it? no they just took my damn idea and they, you know and they did it I gotta hand it to them I mean I was offended at the time but they had a very entertaining video uh, laying out the idea and developed the software to pair people up and they, and he got you know I think like almost twice as much as what Nader got and you know, silent workhorse Sam Husseini well you know <laughs> um, so um, so Cornel West, and he has some rhetoric about reaching out to Trump voters and, you know, all of this, but I don't know how meaningful it is, um, especially to my mind, because he's not addressing pandemic and all of the issues relating to that, which are a huge concern of, you know, no politician, you're right, Aaron, is addressing these things in a meaningful way. Um, but Cornel West doesn't seem to stand the chance of doing so. Kennedy, to my mind, could catch fire and could tap into what I see as the radical center. Um, but he's got serious flaws in how he's approaching it, is, is what I'm saying. So um, my concern is that we're heading towards a disaster. Kennedy isn't doing what he needs to do. Cornell West is just playing the same damn script every other Green Party candidate has played. And the establishment will, will come out on top unless they change, unless the, either of them change or they pair up, which I think is highly unlikely, or to my mind, they step aside and somebody else who gets it step. I mean, I think Ajamu Baraka got both COVID and standard imperialism. He was Jill Stein's vice president, he, you know, uh, of that whole world. He seems the most on the ball for my, yeah, you're, yeah, you're rolling your eyes, Aaron. I no, I, I'm, in I'm in agreement with you. I, but I, I, I'm in agreement with you about him being righteous in what he says. Right. I, I'm more of a mind that I've become jaded to, to the extent that I don't expect the righteousness to always prevail. Or or to be a good strategy necessarily. So I'm I like Baraka a lot, and he usually 
I mean, he, he almost always has takes that I agree with on different issues, and he doesn't fall for the stuff that other people on the, the, the DSA and NATO leftists fall for, and he never does. So on the one hand, I, and, and he's a, I think he's a very, he's, he's a, a good speaker politically. He's actually very punchy. He's one of the better people that you could have out there talking about things to get this message across. I'm only, I only bemoan the fact that I, I just don't think that that's a, a way, I don't think there's enough people who would just take a full-on leftist critique of politics and society and imperialism and so on and just run with it because of the nature of this country. I mean, I just feel like this country is bourgeois to the core and the, the Kennedy, ver, ver, the RFK's version of like taking this sort of libertarian flavored but also New Deal liberalism is uh is is the is a way to appeal to people's self-interest without running headlong into the fact that leftism is so weak in the united states i mean i it's it's i i it's such a difficult thing to even think how you could win under these circumstances that's where i'm i sort of share your exasperation in general even as i have a different take on it because i adjust for what kennedy was trying to do i mean i just say john kennedy ran as a cold warrior to the right of, of Nixon on some issues. That's right. And they murdered him for being insufficiently dedicated to the Cold War. They just shot him down in, in broad daylight, uh, obviously shot him from the front, blew his skull and brains out the back of his head, and it hit the dudes behind him so hard that they thought they got hit with bullets. I mean, that is, that's, that's a strange political system. because it, And still to this day, people on the left are like, oh, that Kennedy, he was a vicious Cold War imperialist. And it's like, well, why did they kill him? You know, I mean, the, the administration did a number of things that were very much in keeping with what the U.S. empire does, obviously, yeah. but there were, other, but, and yet they still killed him. This is, we've got to somehow understand the nature of the system and try to figure out how, what to do with it. It requires constant groveling by, I mean, look, Yasser Arafat, who I was certainly no fan of, groveled to the max to the Israelis. And in the end, they just said, fuck you, we're going to kill you. Um, so, uh, again, excuse my French, but, um, I, I mean, look, I mean, any, anybody can get assassinated. Um, the, these are givens. That's why vice presidential picks are important. That's another feature of my vote pact strategy. You don't pick a vice president who's more moderate than you. <laughs> you pick one that's, you know, on the other side, but will do the same thing that you will. Um, um, so mindful of that, um, I, I, I'm not disheartened. I think that there is a hunger in the U S public and they're flailing around for change, me real change. They'll go to Obama. Okay. Maybe, you know, okay. Trump, no, <laughs> you know, you know, and, um, they want something, um, and there's all of these layers to prevent it from being articulated. And Bryce, you're totally right that we got to do the groundwork, independent media and local activists and so on. But I think that there is an opportunity at the national level. And I, I got handed, Kennedy has done more to get at the radical center than any other candidate um, that I've seen. But it's still fatally flawed in my view and could end up disastrous. So, um, 
So I well, think I hope, that, I hope that it, I hope that it doesn't end up this way, but we are actually out of time because as I said, I have a meeting that I'm going to run to and we did go a little long, but I'm glad we did. Sam, where can people follow your work? Please, uh, I'd really be great if people subscribe to my Substack. That's where I'm trying to whale away at, Husseini.substack.com. Um, I'm also on Twitter and a couple of other platforms, but that's where I'm trying to put most of my energies. All right, well, thank you very much. We will put links to that in the show notes, and it was great talking to you today, Sam Husseini. Thank you yeah, so thanks much. for coming. Thank you, gentlemen. Bryce Green, you're our man in Bloomington. We need an update from you. How is it going right. in terms of radicalizing the labor of graduate students at Indiana University? Uh, dispatches from the front lines of our effort to unionize. Uh, honestly, it's actually going pretty well. Uh, in the first day, we got like 600 or 700 or something cards signed. Uh, and it's just been going up from from there. Our goal right now is 1,600 cards because, you know, we want to get a super majority of the graduate workers on campus. And uh, right now we're sitting at around 1,000. So we're already like past the halfway point, way ahead of the schedule that we expected. I mean, the, the number of people who are willing to come out and do stuff was way beyond what we expected. And uh, there are still some departments where we have barely penetrated yet. So, I mean, there's the, the ground is ripe. I mean, uh, one of the biggest departments that we have, you know, not a lot of people in is uh, uh, the Jacobs School of Music. But that's just because uh, we don't have a lot of musicians as part of the big core music uh, union leadership. But I mean, we found some people in there and everyone we've talked to is like, yeah, you know, we used to be making, you know, like, like shit money before the union uh, went on strike and got everyone a raise. So I'm I'm a union man now. So, I mean, like it's it's just a matter of time. Like we just need to go in there, walk in there and find the people. Uh, but it's looking good. It's looking good. And uh, last time, I mean, the, the last union push that I wasn't here for, but I was here for the end result of it. Uh, but, you know, they went to the administration. The administration said, you know, uh, F off. We don't care about you. And, uh, you know, you have no rights here in the state of Indiana, so we don't have to do anything. Uh, but then, you know, they went on strike. And as a result of that strike, they got, you know, the, the end of fees, uh, those mandatory semesterly fees that are essentially like a whole month's worth of pay uh, and uh they got they raised the the salary the minimum salary by thousands of dollars in some cases some people got like 40 percent, 60 percent raise and uh you know they got, got a lot of other stuff so i mean it works it works and now it seems that we have even more momentum than last time and we there's the memory of the strike that persists within the administration so they're going to have to figure out what they're going to do. At some point, it just becomes easier for them to recognize the union. And that's that's what we're trying to do. So uh, unionizing colleges. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I, I find it frustrating as, you know, unions are part of liberal capitalist, you know, economies. So they and they've, they're traditionally corruptible and so on. And they haven't always played the progressive role, uh, you know, in general, like you think of the Teamsters, et cetera, et cetera. We could go on here, but I do. I believe that the more that 
the la the work the labor force can be unionized it just would seem a, a better thing all around because not just that it'll be it'll allow them to get better you know working conditions and compensation but it seems to be a way to try to start to revive a democratic civil society because there just are not many institutions or organizations that actually function uh to advance the interests of like working people in general and so even if there's problems with the union structure in the united states and even if like because of cap the, the the structure of capitalism they're prone to being corrupted because they also they're they cannot but be kind of co-opted by the system itself because they depend on the same kind of commercial logic that the management does in a sense uh but all that stuff aside it, it seems like a positive like a positive thing what other what other benefits do you see from union you know union organizing besides improving the you know conditions of the unionized workers right well i mean it's, it's like you said like if there's ever going to be any significant change in the political economy of the country it's going to have to come from the bottom up in some way and one of the institutions that still exists that can channel that bottom-up energy are labor unions and like that could be any sort of labor union except police unions because you know that's obviously a different beast uh, but i mean any sort of union for regular working people is going to be a way that they can get politically involved and it's not like electoral politically involved because you know that, that has limited effects and a limited scope but i mean politics is about power and if you're able to take on the power imbalance in your workplace that's a political act and the more and more institutions and organizations uh that can channel that bottom-up energy, uh, the better shape will be. You know, I, I'm a bit of a pessimist sometimes because I'm like, well, you know, if trends continue in America, then it's all going to blow up, and it's going to turn either either the world's going to blow up, or the United States of America is going to become like some sort of fascist dictatorship with like you know, uh, a bunch of you know armed goons patrolling everywhere, and you know, no freedom of speech, no like. Oh, when all those, uh, those those secret cog annexes get activated in the event of some crisis, this isn't the country you're going to want to be in. And that goes yeah, for everybody they, across the board. Yeah, even the even the rich. A, yeah, even the even the rich. Uh, but you know, there is an opportunity to change the trends. There's an opportunity to uh, push back against some of these top-down forces, and even if it doesn't get to the point of, you know, having a you know, a friendly Congress or a friendly president. I mean, that stuff would result from this bottom-up power that unions are trying to build. And that's pretty positive. And, yeah. you know, we're seeing a revival in the labor movement in America in general. I mean, the uh, the amount of labor actions, like, the, uh, like new labor actions, people trying to form a union, has skyrocketed over the last couple of years. It's, like, gone up dramatically. Uh, a public opinion of unions is higher, uh, of public interest in unions is higher, and union successes are also uh, a lot more common. Um, and, and, you know, we, we shit on the Biden administration, rightly so, but one of the good things that came out of there uh, is this NLRB uh, woman, uh, Jennifer Arbuso, and she's been doing excellent work. Uh, she's been doing good work to the point where I'm pretty sure the fact that she's there is a fluke and an accident. Uh, kind of like Lena Khan and um, uh, the FTC. Some of the more wonky progressives are like, you know, fawning over that stuff. And I think that's correct. It's pretty impressive that we have 
for the first time in uh, you know years and years and years, a, a government official in one of these specific positions uh, who's actually saying that hey, maybe we should change things. Now that's limited. It's based on you know they, they serve at the pleasure of whatever political regime put them in power, and you know there's no guarantee that uh, even those changes will be uh, won't be undercut by other forces at a higher level. Uh, but I mean, the, the structure of our, of our of our government does allow for some openings of genuine democracy. And it does, even though our government's you know, mostly captured, there are openings in which you could sort of pry open and get at least some gains for the general public. So, you know, the pessimism is warranted, but it shouldn't be uh, overwhelming. Uh, otherwise, I mean, that's it's kind of paralyzing. I mean, I, I, I like to have hope. <laughs> right. I mean, I, I don't reflexively resort to talking about the dialectic or, or whatever. But I will say that the to, to some extent, pessimism or the accumulation of, of, of very pathological political, you know, events and arrangements does create forces for reforming that are changing it somehow or the other, potentially. And this is so as much as we can point to many things that suck, there's some not entirely delusional uh, hope that comes from that in that it produces the pressure to reform things in a positive way, uh, hopefully. Yeah. Alternatively, it produces uh, pressure in, among your more fascistically inclined elites to come up with new and more powerful forms of fascism, because that's really what fascism is, is, is there for. It's to make sure that the system doesn't get reformed or, uh, or, or changed. And so this is, this is the question is, are these forces going to be able to prevail as they have in U S history, uh, or can they be overcome this time around? Yeah. Uh, and uh, I think I might've said this quote on the show before, but it's a, uh, uh, it's a Noam Chomsky quote, but I mean, the, the, the principle generalizes is that you have two choices. You can either be pessimistic and then ensure the worst that'll happen by your inaction, or you can be optimistic, grasp up the opportunities that do exist, and you know that might lead to a better world. And so uh, when given those two choices, I mean, optimism is, uh, or at least a uh, qualified optimism is, is the only way. Because uh, you know, a lot of people I talk to, or especially, you know, we, we go on Twitter or the internet or whatever, and talk to people and you hear them complain about how uh, America's unequivocally evil and that there's nothing they can do. Uh, I mean, a lot of, there was a good essay I wrote or read a while back about how the American left has a sort of uh, a fetish for losing. Uh, and like, that seems to be their only mode of operation. It's like, how can we lose and have the best possible principles? Like, it's not questions about how can we win? How can we, uh, you know, engage with the actual struggles that do exist, and uh, what can what can what are the levers that exist that we can improve and build upon what we do have? Those conversations don't really happen, and they don't even happen a lot in left media, honestly. Like one of my uh, big critiques of uh, the leftist media ecosystem, one of one of my many big critiques of that ecosystem, is that they don't focus on institution building, movement building. Uh, they focus a lot on uh you know inter inter content creator drama and uh they focus a lot on 
the national level, which, you know, it, it, one of the the triumphalist rhetorics or the triumphalist like uh, uh, like lines that people took about the Internet was that, oh, it would democratize a lot of information and it would democratize uh, the like the news industry. It would eliminate gatekeepers. And that was true to an extent. But the problem with that is uh, American politics is geographically based. Like if you have a million people uh, across the country who believe in something and they all live across the 50 states, there's not a lot they can do together. And what the Internet has done was that it allowed those million people to come together and then feel that they are a significant force. You know, they come together, they, they watch the same media, they talk in the same forums, they run in the same circles on the on like uh, Twitter or whatever. Uh, but they don't actually have any political power because that's not how political power works in America. And so all these disparate people like falling in line with their own uh, uh, political, their, their own ideologically aligned outlets and movements. Well, I mean, it, it doesn't mean anything because they're all scattered and they're not working uh, towards any sort of coherent way to capture actual political power. Uh, what needs to happen is uh, these media organizations need to be at the vanguard of uh, like assisting those movements on the ground that are geographically based, uh, maybe even a, an electoral candidate that is geographically based, because that's that's how power operates. But, you know, uh, if American Exception or Devil's Chess Club had two million subscribers all ready to, you know, ride or die for, uh, I don't know, some some congressional push to disclose a lot of things uh, or some some candidate in California, who's like saying, yeah, I'm going to take on everything, take on the CIA, everything. Well, it doesn't matter because they're all scattered uh, to the wind. Uh, there needs to be some sort of way to bring all of that together. I think a lot of people are working very hard with pretty much infinite resources to make sure that that doesn't happen. And this yeah. is uh, another thing that left. If any group needs to be uh, be pragmatic and adjust based on the power of their adversaries, it would be the left. And yet they often seem the least willing to compromise, <coughs> which I think is why the left is essentially a, a non-entity in the United States. That they're, I mean, Aldo Moro and the communists in Italy were going to form a coalition at some point. And that was threatening enough to the CIA that they had to murder uh, you know, the CIA, NATO, uh, the, the U.S., whatever you want to call them, propaganda due, all these, you know, mm -hmm. the, the sort of fascist hidden regime of Europe was like, no, you're going to die for that. Which that to me is instructive because that says, hey, hey, this is what they they worry about. They're not actually they would they're fine with the communists being like, we are so pure, we will not associate with anyone who is not fully communist. Right. And then when Aldo Moro says, let's form a coalition of of communists, socialists, and, you know, some democratic socialists, whatever, like of the basically the left half of the political spectrum, then they're like, no, that actually is horrifying and we're going to murder you. So that could be instructive, but the left doesn't seem to take that lesson, which, which I think is something we're going to return to in a minute here. But first, yeah, uh, it, it's a, a lot, it's a lot better on the ground than it is online. Like what, you know, I, I, I was in, you know, my Indianapolis DSA, and I love those guys. They recently fielded a candidate for city council who won their primary and is going to win the general. Like, that's that's pretty, pretty good. But some of the people uh, who are in that organization uh, have deep, 
deep disagreements with me politically. Uh, but, you know, those disagreements didn't seem to matter as much when we were, you know, uh, knocking doors, trying to inform people of their addiction and connecting them with resources uh, that would that might help them stay in their homes. And it didn't uh, apply to those people who disagreed with uh, with each other when they were knocking doors to get uh, our guy elected to city council. So I, that's that's the part of it that gives me a lot of hope is that a lot of these, uh, you know, purity politics, they mostly exist on that platform, like the, the Internet and online and on those media medium that like that seem to be tailor made uh, to divide us. And uh, I don't know if you've read uh, Yasha Levine's book on um, uh, Surveillance Valley, uh, but essentially the thesis is that the Internet actually arose out of the the research into counterinsurgency and how to actually uh, divide and conquer people. And uh, the the very infrastructure that went into building the internet was the same infrastructure that was designed to uh, collate lists of of dissidents, uh, you know, first in like, you know, the Phoenix program, uh, but later uh, domestically with like COINTELPRO and uh, other things like that. Uh, yeah, you know, I, it's funny. I, I thought I've thought similar things about different aspects of political organizing and the internet <clears> in general. From, from my time working for Obama because the voter outreach software is like a little kind of scary you can if you think about what the applications would be and how they must be applying this you know at a, at a national level with enormous resources to studying what people think politically but you can find you know you can pull on a map like where that'll have maps of residential areas and where the houses are of people that are likely Obama voters, for example, people that they've already identified in the past as either being strong Talk supporters about van, or the van or, software. Yeah, exactly. That sort of stuff. But the, so, but when you, you think about that's 2008, they've only, they have all kinds of people working in these areas. Now I would imagine that they have looked to be able to have a political map of the United States and where people, to what extent can they actually say, what are the political views of, of all the different people that whose residences we can identify and map, you know, on a big map because they have unlimited computing power, basically. Like it wouldn't surprise me that they had really mapped out everything and that, when they talk about turnkey totalitarianism, this is a scary thing. They've been the elections that we've been running and political campaigns where they try to find out who the supporters are for this and that the politician. Those have applications potentially that could be very frightening and totalitarian when you combine it with other things that we know they've done in the past, like, you know, uh, Rex 84 and all these other <laughs> COG plans for dealing with, a, you know, domestic cr crisis. Like this is scary, and the Phoenix program might be the right metaphor for it, and that's that actually is is very worrisome. And this is all the more reason to try to get out in front of these things and protect people's privacy. I mean, that is a weird thing that the left is not interested in privacy or limiting surveillance and so on. By and large, this is like they almost think of these as right people that are support the Bill of Rights and civil liberties. There's a lot of people on the left or liberal left who think that that's like a right wing thing to care about yeah, privacy like and the Bill of Rights. Hicks. <laughs> I mean, that is that to me is just uh, astounding. It's astounding <clears throat> what has happened to liberalism in the United States. It's become so illiberal, like of all things. That is is amazing. But I want to talk about I want to yeah. change the subject here. Uh, something else that I talked about on uh, RBN last night because uh, we're recording this on Thursday. 
uh, and that is the Bernie Sanders. Uh, apparently, he's like, get off my lawn, Code Pink. Uh, and he calls the cops on him. And uh, w- w- what's your take on this whole <laughs> spectacle outside of Bernie Sanders' office? Right. Well, I, I'm not actually clear on who made the call to, yeah, uh, to do the arrest. Yeah, it's a good point. They keep um, saying Bernie, but I don't know if it they is. Keep, they keep saying that, like, you know, Bernie Sanders had us arrested, which, I mean, is effectively true, I guess. But, you know, the specifics are, are different. But what is true is that Bernie Sanders has been, you know, the the face of the American progressive movement for quite some time now. Uh, but even he will not criticize the Ukraine war, the Ukraine proxy war. He won't criticize the Biden's uh, the Biden administration's policy of non-negotiation. He won't criticize the Biden administration's policy of increasing, slowly creeping up of the level of escalation. You know, first it was, we weren't going to send tanks, and then we sent tanks. We're not going to send F-16s. Okay, we'll send F-16s. We're not going to send high Mars. We'll send high Mars. We're not going to send depleted uranium. Oh yes, we will. We're not going to send cluster munitions. Like it, it keeps it keeps ramping up. And we or, we're heard. gonna we're gonna blow up the Nord Stream, or I mean, we didn't blow up the Nord Stream. <laughs> yeah, uh, and all of this stuff is like, it, it's very dangerous, and it's pretty obvious to anyone. It's obvious to most people in the world, just not in the West and America specifically, that this is very dangerous, and that some negotiated settlement is needed. But Bernie Sanders, the face of the American progressive, the face of the American leftist, it doesn't seem to have a peep. To say uh, like uh, doesn't doesn't say anything about it. He openly voices support for these new uh, uh, Ukraine war aid packages, uh, and uh, I think and you know some people were upset with that and decided to protest outside of his office, led by Code Pink, which is an excellent organization that uh, you know uh, not only do uh, does Medea Benjamin put out like good books about important topics, but like they also do activism. They also go out and like. Uh, shut down like arms, uh, like arms industry sponsored talks or whatever. They they get in people's faces, and uh, that, that's an important aspect of uh, you know putting pressure on public officials. Uh, but Bernie Sanders seemed to uh, be completely unresponsive to that, and a bunch of activists. I think it was like ten or he was he was responsive. He responded. <laughs> yeah, uh, he responded with uh, essentially a, a yawn and a middle finger, um, and that's why you know those activists got arrested and uh, it's I mean, it just goes to show that once again the only opposition to this ukraine war in, a, in american politics uh, comes from the far right and it's not even a principled opposition it's a tactical opposition because they think that we should be blowing up china or uh, giving well, a bunch yeah of they want the democrats to take a big l on this yeah and they yeah they know that this is biden's biden's thing biden's war and they know it's unpopular so they're going to use it as a wedge issue, even though, you know, they, like, they, they don't care about uh, the fact that this is a cash cow for the military industrial complex. They don't actually care that we're spending money on it instead of spending money on social pro- uh, programs because, you know, uh, yeah, they, but they, they, they would like that money to be spent on tax relief for, you know, the, the yeah. 1%. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, it, it, it just really underscores the political dead end. Uh, in America when it comes to uh, foreign policy. I mean, I mean uh, at a congressional level. I was well, just talking there, about optimism. Can't, but, you, uh, can't you make a devil's advocate argument like that Bernie just really cares about the Ukrainian people? I mean, isn't he helping the Ukrainians by doing this? Well, you know, you could make that argument. 
But to, for it to stick, you'd have to believe that Bernie Sanders believes that blowing up Ukraine is actually helping the Ukrainian people. You'd have to believe that cluster munitions that'll be picked up by Ukrainian kids in the year 2030 or 2050 uh, are actually going to help Ukraine. And that birth defects from depleted uranium is going to help Ukraine. Uh, I mean, you know, he might believe that. A lot of people do genuinely believe that. I'm pretty sure his old foreign policy advisor, uh, Matt Duss, uh, firmly believes that. Like, <laughs> like yeah. and he's one of those guys who, uh, uh, who again represents some of the, the uh, the fringes of American foreign policy thinking. Uh, but you know, he's all gung ho for NATO, gung ho for Ukraine war. Uh, again, the weird thing is that the only Beltway establishment think tank that actually publishes things that are critical of the Ukraine war, uh, it's like the the Cato Institute, which is you know right-wing billionaire funded uh, yeah they're libertarians and then the, yeah and then the quincy institute which is funded by george soros and charles Koch. Uh, like that was a, a soros Koch production and, and yet uh, both of those inst- uh, like organizations are producing good and insightful work about what's actually going on in the ukraine war like you know you don't don't ask uh, uh don't ask all of them about like their opinion on taxes or anything but in terms of understanding the dynamics of escalation, in terms of publishing about the uh, uh, the lack of dissent in the media, you know, the Quincy Institute published an excellent study about how much, uh, uh, how many think tanks that are quoted in the mainstream media are funded by, uh, you know, the military industry, the war industry. It found that of the top fifteen, uh, of the top fifteen quoted, the top quoted think tanks in the top like ten papers in the U.S all but one are Pentagon funded. And the one that's not is human or Pentagon contractor funded. The one that's not is Human Rights Watch. <laughs> and, uh, you know, they just quoted to talk about how uh, uh, they're usually quoted to talk about how evil Russia is. So, yeah, have- they're they're definitely one of those sock puppet organizations that pretends to be, you know, supporting X, but they're really just another avenue for the U.S. empire. They're, they basically are there to provide a humanitarian gloss for U.S. imperialism. And then sometimes they do decent reports. In in my estimation, this is how they function. They will actually publish some decent reports on human rights violations, even of some U.S. allies like Israel or Saudi Arabia. But this is more as a way for them to like sheep dip themselves as a legitimate public advocacy organization when really like the people that give them money, give them money because they're useful to for uh, in terms of providing humanitarian cover for U.S. hegemony. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but but the fact is that the, the Quincy Institute, uh, they published that report, and it's very good, very useful. Uh, but they're like the only people in Washington who get even, you know invited them, in the room. Does anybody at Quincy, is anybody candid about Maidon? I mean, is there is, is the Quincy Institute stuff as good as Consortium News even? Because I've never seen anything from them. I always find that they have some like, well, yes, but... Like, I feel like that's like what should be on there. <clears throat> that's like, they're like the yes, but critique of empire where it's like, they want, they don't, they often pull so many punches uh, in order to vo- avoid, I think, delegitimizing some of these. I mean, they don't talk about Maidan. I think that's true. How do you talk about Ukraine without putting the Maidan thing right there? Because it basically, we, it, it negates pretty much the U.S. arguments, if you're honest the about it. The entire argument. <laughs> and, and this is, but they won't do it. So why? Why are they like that? And I, I just feel like this this points to like a problem with those kind of you wonder, like, is that why they're actually given money? Are they there because they because Coke and um, 
Coke and Soros, um, Soros are. They, uh, they have other funders they, too, but those are the. Yes, founders. but they're the big ones, and and do, so do they fund them because they are perhaps worried that if you don't have some kind of uh, voice out there criticizing the war, you might have other people criticizing U.S. imperialism who are not as controllable. So you it's a way to manage the dissent and keep it within certain bounds. Uh, you know, I mean, that because I don't see them as being genuinely interested in bringing down the U.S. empire like they're it's that's the regime that protects all of their vast internationally invested capital. Like, so why are they doing this it's, then? Yeah, it, it, that is a good question. And it is difficult for me to speak to the motives of the funders. Like, you know, George Soros obviously is uh, deeply connected with the American regime change, Inc., basically. And uh, he fund he helped he helped fund Maidan, um, which I don't know what the Quincy Institute has written specifically about Maidan. Um, but all of their work does is couched in this like, uh, yes, but language. And I can't speak to the perspective of the funders, but for the writers, I think there is a logic to that. Because you are trying to make an impact within the Washington Beltway, and you have to pull some punches if you want people to even start to listen to you. So if your if your goal is to say like, hey, the U.S. military budget is uh, uh, you know too high, and we want to reduce that, well, you know, one way of going about that is by saying, um, uh, hey, you know, this is the biggest murder machine in the history of humanity, uh, and we're funding it, we should stop that on moral grounds. But instead what they do is uh, they'll be like, well, it's not in US strategic interest actually to have uh, you know, this this military base here. It doesn't, uh, it doesn't it's not in our strategic interest to fund this, uh, you know, like whatever, F-100 billion program for uh, attack planes because the planes don't really work very well. And uh, you know, uh, if we want to maintain a robust American security, we need to, to trim the fat on this. Uh, it's it's couched in language like that. It's it's, it's kind of like about, Obama when he talked about Iraq and he said, "I'm not against wars. I'm just against stupid wars." It's like, well, but you could say the war was illegal and criminal and disastrous as well. But he doesn't. He says, "I'm just against." He basically makes that argument. I'm against strategically unwise wars. Kind of. I mean, I, uh, they their whole their whole shtick is that they're advocating a quote restraint oriented foreign policy. So they're not talking about like dismantling the empire. They're mostly like, you know, uh, critiquing specific aspects of the empire rather than the system as, as a whole. Which, yeah. I, I it, it's had an effect. People, uh, you know, will accept Quincy into their, you know, their congressional offices, and uh, maybe some congressmen will show up to like a Quincy-sponsored event, or they'll at least read it, and uh, and that might affect their thinking, which. You know, I mean, that that's a positive thing. Is it limited? Certainly. Does it have a like a, a short shelf life because of that? I mean, maybe. But, you know, I'll take I'll take what I can get, I suppose. Uh, but the critique of the, the the critique of those organizations is still important to have, at least from from the outsider yeah. perspective. I mean, they seem to, they hire people who are professionals like IR scholars or maybe people who are in other think tanks or other academics or other journalists, perhaps. You know, treat, treat a Parsi like, you know, I, I don't think he's like a like a, a radical communist multipolarist uh, trying to overthrow the U.S. empire. But he has very insightful and uh, very thorough examinations of uh, U.S. diplomatic stance towards Iran. 
Uh, and Bronco Marchetic uh, writes for their publication, Responsible Statecraft, occasionally. And, you know, he's great. Uh, Anatole Levin, uh, he's been one of the, he was one of like the, the Cassandras uh, about this Ukraine crisis. Uh, you know, he was talking about Maidan and he was talking about uh, uh, the, the Minsk Accords and how the U.S. had no interest in uh, pursuing them. Uh, and his work is very good and very thorough. Um, in fact, uh, Levin was one of the people interviewed for uh, blowback. By the way, if, uh, I don't know if you saw that, but um, they, uh, yeah, they have they have good people there. Uh, they also have like conservatives like uh, Andrew Basevich, uh, who you know, good on empire or good uh, generally has a good critique of American empire, but you know, not not so good on other issues. Uh, it's it's a mixed bag all around. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I am. Uh... I, the, the issue of no institutional setting for a real critique of empire, this is, a, this is a recurring problem, and I think that that's really why, I mean, it exists for a reason. The reason that there's not a good institution for that is the same reason you have people like Paul Mason in those emails saying, we really need to make sure that there's no anti-imperialist identity that, that, that emerges. Mm -hmm. And to me, that's like, yep, that's what we need. And I don't think, that, I don't think the Quincy Institute and that brand of like imperial complaint is really necessary i think it may be or, or ultimately helpful it may be a wash maybe it does more harm than good maybe it does a little more good than harm bronco i think bronco does try to work within the institutions and probably is a little bit more radical than the the people that edit his his articles uh but you know he's that's he's trying to write within that sphere and i you know wish him luck there but it is difficult the last thing i want to talk about here um is uh, you, you saw a note, a community note posted on Twitter that gets into this issue of the PSL and it's relevant to Code Pink and so on. Uh, can you explain, can you read this this note? Because this was pretty amazing to me. Yeah, uh, well, I mean, this is just happening today, but uh, uh, this, this tweet was from Code Pink yesterday. It was talking about some of these uh, activists getting arrested at uh, Senator Sanders' office. And, you know, they're saying peace in Ukraine, peace in Ukraine. And, you know, put the, the link Twitter, in the chat and I'll, I'll pull it up with my at my fancy command center here. Yeah. Um, the Twitter community notes, which, you know, they can be good. They can be bad sometimes. But uh, generally, they're. I think they're crowdsourced largely. I'm not quite sure what the, what, how it works, but then the Twitter community notes for it. Oh, did they did they remove it? I think they might have removed it actually. Ah, uh, okay. Did you you didn't get a screenshot? I did. I did get a screenshot though. Oh, <laughs> wow, awesome! I did get a screenshot. Uh, it says, "Code Pink is a government-sponsored group which, uh, which with it's a little typo there, which with links to the Chinese government. In the context of the Russian war in Ukraine, they appear to be a Russia." propaganda organization as they have not been critical of russia once in their entire twitter history and that's, yeah, uh, that's good so they wait well, go on what else does it say anything else no it, it just links to this article in a new lines magazine uh about uh about this guy um uh the the american tech magnet uh, roy singham uh, and they, they they talk about his connections to Code Pink and other uh, leftist organizations. Uh, this guy Roy Singham, I, I don't know too much about him, 
I haven't done any deep dive in it. Uh, but you know the, the, that New Lines article was talking about how he's uh, romantically involved with one of the Code Pink ladies, and he's also involved in funding things like uh, uh, they have like a weird uh, like Charlie Kelly style style map here. Um, he's close friends with Vijay Prashad. He also funds ThoughtWorks, which which funds uh, uh, or he's associated with ThoughtWorks, with the which is associated with a bunch of other uh, left organizations. Yeah, I, I don't know if you can put put this map up, but it's in this uh, it's in this article. But the I mean, the long and short of it is that it's trying to construct this uh, this implication that these left organizations that are anti-imperialist, like uh, like like BJ Prashad, the People's Forum, uh, you know, the People's Support Foundation, all these groups, they're trying to paint them as you know direct assets of the Chinese government, which. <laughs> they're not uh but you know it's 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 the sort of kind of i don't know pa- the paranoid mccarthy i thinking that's going to define the the new cold war uh it's it's just so bizarre but uh they they link to it yep <laughs> here's our guy yeah i can make it bigger but like yeah this is like a good uh <clears throat> style map of uh of all this it's like they're. Yeah. It's like a very corporate and shitty version of Frank Lombardi or something. Yeah, at, at best, this map tells you that there are a lot of organizations and individuals who are interconnected, who have an anti-imperialist disposition. What it does not tell you is that they're, you know, assets of the Chinese government. Maybe they're not criticizing Russia because everyone else is criticizing Russia, and they are an American <laughs> organization with a critique against America. Maybe, maybe that would uh, explain why they haven't done what they did. That maybe uh, somebody else kind of has that niche covered in terms of criticizing Russia. Like, oh gosh, where as an American can I find criticism of Russia? I'm just having a problem finding anyone who will say anything bad about Russia. I mean, what? what? It's, yeah. it's insane. Yeah, but I mean, that's just—it's it, it, just like Russia get all over again. It's—it's it's just like this. Uh, it's gonna be—it's gonna be so bad in the next couple of years. It's all gonna be so stupid. You know, I have friends who are associated with some of these organizations, like the People's Forum. Uh, I have friends who have done work with, uh, you know, Vijay Prasad at Tricontinental. Uh, and, you know, you ask them about this, they're like, yeah, well, I mean, obviously they're going to try and smear us as Chinese government connected. I mean, the Quincy Institute, uh, they had a, a member of their board resign uh, because of the Quincy Institute's position on the Ukraine war. And they were like, uh, I, I'm pretty sure uh, the Quincy Institute has been captured by Russian propagandists, and it's a shame. Uh, so I will no longer associate with them. But that's the sort of thing that you're gonna, that's just gonna keep gonna coming up in this, in this period, in this, uh, this highly contentious period of uh, imperial decline and lashing out. Yeah, I mean, it's weird. This Ukraine business, especially, is melting people's brains. And I think that they're getting to the point where they're like, okay, we, we have our, our whole strategy, which is like, we've got NAFO and they're out there and they're, you know, clickety clackety spamming everybody with memes, blanketing the information <laughs> war zone with stupid memes and shit posts, you know, and everything's going like it should. But it's like elsewhere you have like Ukrainians sent out with millions of dollars in, a, in equipment. And then some guy in Russia is like bloop. And then they just blow it all up and it's like they're like oh no we should send more shit posts you know it's like <laughs> this is getting to be where they can they can 
their their mo their tactic of just we're just gonna shovel so much bullshit on people and we'll win this psych psy war it's like but at some point there there is an impossible situation over there and no amount of shit posting is going to to reverse that like nothing it's not like napoleon was defeated at waterloo because you know his shit posters got lost on the way to the front like uh there's reality that they're running into and so this is where <laughs> this is what is something's got to give here i i think the, you just can't just call everybody propagandists all the time like at some point the one side i think the one the side the ukraine war side has already been utterly discredited and that we're just not able to admit that yeah yeah and, and well i mean you, you already saw it with the with the change in coverage about the war like in the wake of this counteroffensive. You already saw, um, uh, you know, the New York Times start covering things that, you know, they obviously could have covered before, but now they're starting to talk about how, uh, you know, everyone in Ukraine is sad because, you know, their sons are dying and that their their limbs are being blown off and that their cities are being blown up. Uh, now they're talking about that in, in a serious way, but, uh, you know, they could they could have done it before, but that's because the reality is becoming so undeniable. That eventually, if they're going to have any credibility after thing, this thing is over, they're going to have to say something about it. I mean, I, I have not seen a, a situation where the the everything, the fundamentals were so absurd, and yet nobody was really honest about it. The the very basis of the whole thing, we have to keep sending Ukraine weapons because this brutal Russian invasion, and yet we're now at the point where they even even higher officials in NATO and the U.S. government admitted that like, yeah, this was brought on by NATO expansion. So at the same time that they're basically admitting that like the prospect of the prospect and practice of flooding Ukraine with NATO weapons is the actual reason for this war. And then they're also saying that we must keep flooding Ukraine with weapons because of this war. It's like, isn't the flooding of Ukraine with weapons the only reason that this war exists <laughs> in the first place? And this is very obvious. And on top of it, it's obvious also that they're going to lose. And then they essentially have already should Russia decide to destroy whatever else of the country it wants to destroy. I mean, this is uh, where, where where is this going to go? I know you, you don't know any yeah. more than I do, but like, how can it stand? How can this stand forever? Yeah, uh, you know, I was talking about optimism, uh, but I mean, I, I do have I do have to have a lot of optimism. But in terms of the American political establishment and this war specifically, I don't know where the what the adults in the room where they went, and I don't know who the smart what the smartest people in the room think at this point, because I, I mean I've talked about this earlier. This whole situation is pretty untenable. Like unless you're gonna get NATO directly involved, then Ukraine is going to lose. And and what happens to, if you get directly involved? Yeah, if you if you get directly involved, then everyone loses. Like the world ends. Like that's game. That's absolutely game over. And they know that. Like, you know, Biden's been saying, like, oh, yeah, I don't want to don't want to start a nuclear war. It's not a good idea. But then he's doing everything he can to inch us closer to that. And he's doing nothing to actually take us off that path. So who knows? <laughs> I know. I know. This is it's amazing. It's like they, they have two things in their mind and you don't know how they're going to reconcile them. One is that we cannot lose because it would be they they feel that it would be detrimental to the project of global dominance forever and the other like the other thing is that like we can't 
we can't win because winning to win, we would have to intervene in a way that would cause nuclear war. So they're basically saying like, we can't intervene further and we know this and uh, we know we can't win, but we also know we can't lose because that would be so we can't accept that. And so now we're just yeah. stuck in this. I it's, I've never seen anything like that in the U.S. I've seen the U.S. make some dumb decisions before. Even the Iraq war was bad. I think this one is worse and and dumber. Uh, yeah. And more and more baffling in terms of understanding, like, what could they possibly be thinking at this point? Yeah, like, even the Afghanistan war, it was like, okay, you know, you, we can continue the Afghanistan war for as long as we want. Uh, we can lie to the American public, say it's going well. Uh, but as long as we keep these, you know, the, these forward-facing bases in Afghanistan, as long as we're still surrounding Iran, and as long as we still have, like, a, a, you know, a wedge that might be able to stick into China, you know, that, that's all worth it. Here in Ukraine, the end game is like, what, like endless war on Russia's borders that could spark up to nuclear level at any second? That that doesn't get you what you want. <laughs> like, that doesn't get anyone what they want. But yeah, we can speculate about the motives of these jackasses for, uh, you know, until the cows come home. But I think they're trying to hold on until after the election. And they, I think that they're actually more panicked than they ever have been because I don't, Okay, on the like Biden, everybody, or there seems to be an emerging semi consensus or general impression that Biden is going to get dropped, and then at that point, the how the, people think the Democrats are just going to drop in Newsom, which is just more evidence that it's not that it's a top down thing anyway, which everybody already knows. Uh, and then what? And then what? How is he going to handle things? How is he going to do polish this this turd that he's been handed, which is the Ukraine <laughs> war? And uh, you already see him kind of taking some, he's taken a slightly more mainstream position on some of the California trans laws. He just vetoed a bill. And he also uh, took slightly modified his, his uh, positions on COVID related things. So it seems like he's trying to actually get away from some of the more repellent aspects of uh, his, his political background. But like, is that going to be, can they win with that dude if they do put him in there? I mean, I don't, I, I don't know where I don't know where the hell they go from here, and I'm I'm that worries me because I'm thinking, are they going to do something really crazy between now and then? Because all the trends seem so bad for them. You know what could happen? They could run Pete Buttigieg, and if that happens, I'm declaring a jihad, and uh, I'm going to Pete Buttigieg's house to personally like flick him on the nose every time he says something stupid. I mean. He, we as Indiana people, we need to stand up and defeat Mayor Pete. We got to police. <laughs> we got to keep our own house clean, you know. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that can't. That guy. I can't believe that. But I don't know. I'm just. I, I, this is an amazing thing because Trump and a terrible Democratic candidate, and then Kennedy. What is going to happen? That's where I actually think, like, man, Kennedy has a has a chance. To me, the case for voting for him is very. I don't feel like I really have to stretch that much. I just, to, to say like why his policies are better than these other two guys. I just, but who knows what, what the hell will happen, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, uh, I mean, we were, we were talking with Sam earlier about the, uh, about the whole idea of how you govern and like, what's going to be the coalition that he brings into the white house and where he staffs it. I mean, it's an open question as to where that will actually go. Uh, I'm not sure which, I'm not sure who, like what he thinks about, like the current state of uh, like labor law in America. I don't know what he thinks about antitrust law. I don't know what he thinks about, uh, you know, the Department of Agriculture. 
or, uh, or any of these little things that do end up shaping your administration. Like, I, don't, I don't even know if he's talked about like student debt cancellation or uh, uh, or how he feels about the healthcare system beyond the critique of big pharma. So all those things to me are not uh, they're not settled, but I feel like there's an opening there that you won't have with uh, you know obviously the Republican and Democratic parties. So we'll yeah. see. It's going to be very interesting. I think David will be on uh, for the David will be on next week. Uh, he'll be coming back and we'll be able to talk more about the RFK independent announcement in Philadelphia, which I may or may not attend, depending on if they reach if, if they're able to get me uh, a pass. And I'm also taking a trip this weekend. So it's like I may not I may not go to it or I may chances leaning towards not being able to go to it because of a trip. But uh, we'll have we'll be back with David and he'll be talking about it and yeah, we'll he'll see. have more to say on it. Um, any any last words here? Uh, I mean, no. I mean, my, my position has always been, you know, with respect to like presidential politics is that it's uh, pretty secondary to anything you do at a local level or to anything you're doing like in your community uh, outside of that. Uh, but, you know, you, you force my hand to think about RFK Jr. a lot <laughs> and, the, and like the, the opportunities and pitfalls that that might present, um, uh, you know, but at the end of the day, it is just pulling the lever. Uh, it is just, uh, I mean, uh, unless you're planning on, I don't know, starting a, starting a, I don't know, RFK in your group in your, uh, in your, <laughs> on your block or whatever. No, that'll happen. I think they're going to try to have a ground game eventually. Uh, I, I, I don't know how they're going to do it, but they will. And, uh, so that'll be there for your, for people later on to, to look into if they want to get involved. I mean, Obama had a pretty good ground game. That was what I was a part of. Uh, yeah, he may. I think he may have the best ground game of anybody in the coming election because I think that the people that do support him are more motivated uh, to really want to do something different. Whereas, like, yeah, I don't know. There's going to be no Democratic ground game because, like, uh, unless there's like someone who's very inspiring at like the state or local level, which you know I don't know about because I don't have that information. But I mean, I can't. I can't imagine a bunch of people going like, "I'm riding with Biden a second time." I, I can't I can't see that. But, you know, what do I know? What do I know? Yeah. Well, this will be this will be very interesting. All right. Uh, until next week, Bryce, thank you very much. Till next week, Aaron. Devil's Chess Club is an American exception production. Special thanks to Dana Chavaria for producing this episode and to Casey Moore for the graphics. To get first access to episodes of Devil's Chess Club, please subscribe to the American Exception podcast on Patreon. Subscribers get access not only to Devil's Chess Club, but to the rest of the American Exception podcast. Many episodes, over 150, dealing with the deep, dark politics of U.S. empire. After that, you can find episodes on Rockfin Premium before they eventually get posted to YouTube on a new Devil's Chess Club playlist on the American Exception YouTube channel. Next week, David should be rejoining us and we may also have Peter Dale Scott on, depending how things go. So stay tuned. Now for this latest with Sam Husseini on Palestine and what it means for RFK Jr. On COVID and biowarfare, I think Sam is off base. Kennedy is the best national figure on Fauci and pharma and biowarfare. And on calling for a binding international uh, regime that would regulate these things. So he's off base, but for good reason, I would say, in that he is one of the few people that recognizes the extreme peril of these weapon systems 
and research in these areas. And so he um, is trying to publicize this as best he can. So I take my hat off for him for that, at least, even if I think that he's a, a little off in trying to understand what Kennedy is doing with this issue, which is um, a, a very thorny thing to deal with. How much does he want to make this uh, the center of his campaign? How much does he want to de-emphasize it? Hard to say. On Israel and Palestine, I don't think Kennedy's position is defensible anymore. Uh, previously, I think I could at least make the argument that he was operating in a way that was uh, realist, generally speaking, and that took into account the extreme power of the Israel lobby and how it's able to basically crater any sort of challenge to imperialism uh, by just accusing people of anti-Semitism and so on. But now this policy seems uh, it runs the risk of seeming just sadistic, really. Uh, so he needs to expand his realist appraisal of the U.S. empire's decline to include Israel as well. The world is changing. The Anglo-U.S. empire that created Israel can no longer call the shots to the rest of the world. This may spiral into a bigger conflict that will overshadow everything else this election season. And so I think it's important to get out in front of it. People have speculated that the Israelis may have known the attack was coming and didn't try to mitigate the damage so they could have a pretext for a bigger campaign. I'm not sold on that, but I do fear that there are deep aspects to this and that my sense that something spectacular would happen before the election was on target. Will this spiral into the wider Middle East? Could this lead to a disastrous war against Iran? Could U.S. or Israeli forces use this to expand operations in Syria and draw Russia into it somehow? There are too many horrifying possibilities to contemplate. So as I said, Kennedy needs to get out in front of this. He should speak of Palestine and Ukraine and Taiwan in the same breath and speak of the need for the next U.S. president to adopt policies that will accept a changing reality. Uh, so we need to acknowledge that this multipolar world is and ha is emerging. It has emerged to some degree. And for each of these zones of crisis, Kennedy should propose that the U.S. partner with Russia and China, along with relevant regional actors, to come up with a way to resolve these conflicts. Such a grouping could solve these problems and form a new basis for managing international relations in a lawful and sensible way. Israel-Palestine could be the centerpiece of a new era in world history. The U.S. and China specifically could devote vast sums of money towards constructing new and more just societies in the Holy Land, where all peoples could be free and secure, which sounds like a pipe dream as of now, but the world is changing. If Kennedy doesn't get out in front of this and modify his position, I fear it may damage his chances. It's not that there's a ton of support in the U.S. for Palestine. It's just that for the people who would be on, uh, you know, among the most energized by Kennedy's central themes of peace and ending the U.S. empire, these are not people who will back a hardline Zionist. So I think that Kennedy's campaign represents still a unique and singular opportunity for the U.S. to take control of its destiny and redirect the regime away from empire before the rest of the world does it for us. I see this as the most urgent task facing the planet. It may be existential. I'm very afraid of what these people might do with another four years to try and hatch plots for maintaining U.S. global dominance. Friends, remember, 
that while it may seem grim, every empire eventually loses on the devil's chessboard. <laughs>